all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me today here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner and associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Joining me today, I have another awesome nurse practitioner, Kaylin Lewis. She is a neurology uh, nurse practitioner at MS Neurology Care Clinic here in Ridgeland, Mississippi, and we're delighted to have her on today. And we're going to be talking about kind of general neurology stuff, but with a focus in on dizziness and dementia. And you may be going, well, those two things don't go together. But, well, they both start with a D, so that is good. But dizziness is a very common symptom that comes in to primary care clinics, other specialty clinics, and is something that neurology deals with a lot. So I wanted to give you guys some good evidence-based information about dizziness. So if you have questions related to that, we're happy to take those today. And then we'll also spend some time on memory loss and dementia because that seems to be um, becoming ever more common as well. And as always, you can email me fit at mpbonline.org. All right, Kaylin, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am wonderful. I'm wonderful. It is uh, not too hot, not too cold today. So I am I'm good with this kind of even temperature that we're having and it's not raining. So that's a good that's a good thing all the way around. So tell us a little bit about about your background as a nurse and as a nurse practitioner and, you know, where you're working now. Okay. yeah. So um, I went to Mississippi State University, uh, transferred to William Carey for nursing school. Um, after transferring there and graduating, I ended up working at UMC for five years in the neurology and neurosurgery floor. While doing that, I worked on my master's degree at William Carey in nursing research and education. I had the pleasure of working at multiple nursing schools and helping students and precepting them in this area. And while precepting them, I also had a job with research in the infectious diseases and HIV portion at UMC while still working in neurology. Busy lady. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I got a postmaster's at University of Mississippi Medical Center in adult uh, nurse practitioner and just continued neurology from then on out. Um, I 
transferred from UMC to Hattiesburg Clinic for two years as a neurology nurse practitioner, drove back and forth for two years, and that kind of wears on you after that a while. It wears on your soul a little bit. <laughs> and eventually transferred to the neurology department at St. Dominic, and now I am running a clinic with uh, co-partnered with three other neurology nurse practitioners. And that's wonderful. And so you've had a kind of a a diverse uh, background in education and research and these types of things. But neurology has always been kind of central to that. What about neurology just excites you? So when I was in nursing school, it was my best subject. So I felt like it was always good. If I'm going to take care of patients, might as well take care of patients in a subject that I'm good at. But while I was working in neurology, one of the epiphanies I had was the fact that there are a lot of areas in the body that can be fixed and corrected. Somebody can break their arm and they can have ortho fix it or have it amputated. Uh, they could go blind, but they still know who they are. They can lose, they can have their heart uh, transplanted. Uh, but one thing is once your mind is gone, mm. it's gone. It doesn't matter if the rest of the body, if the computer screen looks great, but it can't work, what's the point? So that, that was very intriguing for me to go down the rabbit hole of really diving into studying more about neurology. Yeah, absolutely. It is quite fascinating. And I really like the analogy you just gave there because I've never really <laughs> thought of it um, in that particular way before. But so much of who and what we are is wrapped up in our consciousness and our memories. And when we kind of lose access to those things, it, it uh, can be very debilitating mm-hmm. for folks. So if we have listeners who are not quite sure exactly what neurology encompasses, what are things that fall under the realm of neurology? So neurology studies the nervous system. We also focus in on muscles as well. So when you think of the nervous system, you want to think of the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system. Brain and spine consist of central, so you want to think center of the body. Mm -hmm. And they play a big role in receiving and sending signals to the outside world. The peripheral nervous system is the nerves that... uh, extend from the spinal cord that communicate with our senses, touch. There's some areas that we don't even realize Mm -hmm. that we are taking in information that our peripheral nervous system is collecting data and it's bringing it to the brain. And the brain is interpreting the data and deciding for us as human beings what to do with that data. Um, We do a lot of treatment with seizures, migraines, or any other types of headaches, neuromuscular disorders. There's there's a wide range of memory loss, balance disorders. It's a very, very wide range of disorders we treat. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we mentioned kind of memory issues and that kind of thing. But when you truly think about all the things that the nervous system controls or has a role in it's it's so vast i mean right now there's like a loose piece of hair like Mm -hmm. one strand of hair that has fallen off of my head (laughs) and is rubbing against the back of my arm and that's kind of all i can think about right Mm -hmm. now this one little strand and that's the the sensation that you're Mm -hmm. you're talking about and that's just one part of it there's also temperature control or temperature sensation that our body's um neurovascular system is going to pick up on and uh, pain you know all of these different things rolled in there. So it is a very wide area of the body that can fall under neurology. Are there any kind of 
particular <laughs> sub-focuses that you really enjoy taking care of? Anything complex. Oh, you uh, like a challenge. <laughs> you like a challenge. Uh, actually, if nobody else can figure out what is going mm-hmm. on with a specific patient, I do like to take on the challenge. Um, I do like to take on multiple neurological conditions that a patient may have and figure out if there's one specific cause mm-hmm. or if we're dealing with just the perfect storm of a bunch of minute causes mm-hmm. that's just making uh, one big problem. There's no specific area that I have an enjoyment for because I just enjoyed the whole area mm-hmm. of neurology. Well, it sounds like it's very similar to the way that I approach patient care as well is looking for that root cause of, of what is going on, you know, from you know my practice, it's more lifestyle related. And so I'm always trying to get to the, the root of what's driving this hypertension or this diabetes or whatever. And that's the the part that intrigues me so much is going, is there some kind of central underlying thing that's causing all of these symptoms or is it several conditions that may be related that are are causing the symptoms that we see in the patient and while that is interesting for me to work up what is the best part of that is how rewarding it is when you're able to kind of attack that root cause and get either symptomatic or um, you know disease reversal for for patients is a really exciting piece there. And I so I think I, I see a kindred spirit in you there in that <laughs> in that way. Um, when we're talking about um, patient involvement in care, I know I'm. Uh, a really big proponent of being a partner with my patients in treating their um, their conditions and making sure that they understand the things that we are doing. In terms of um, the field of neurology, how important is patient education to helping to address those issues? It's incredibly important because in some way the patient does have to take responsibility for their care. I can't be at their house holding their hand and helping them. So whereas I can diagnose and I can treat a patient there are other responsibilities that they do have to take on, such as if a patient was dehydrated, they, mm-hmm. they're responsible for drinking the amount of water, exercise, uh, maintaining an overall health, taking their medication correctly. Uh, not just patient, but family involvement, family involvement is important. very, very mm-hmm. important, especially if we're dealing with a memory loss patient. Um, and so I find that education is extremely important and in fact 50 percent of the visit ends up being education education. (laughs) yep it it really does and you know what I find helpful with patients is people are much more likely to do things that we ask them to do if we tell them why right Mm -hmm. like if we really make it relevant for why you need to to be better hydrated, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're coming in and telling me you don't feel well, you're fatigued, maybe you're dizzy, you know, these kinds of things, and that's really impacting your ability to do things you enjoy. Well, the hydration is a big piece of that, and, and let me tell you why, and like really spell it out, and then we build that plan together, right? You know, what what do you think's keeping you from being as hydrated as you would like to be, and that's how we really start to to break things down. Because a lot of times, uh, we've just haven't told people why we want them to do things we just tell exactly. them to do it um, but it's you're much more likely to, to get that movement and that participation in care when we provide really good education we do have a caller on the line so we will go to Ridgeland and say good morning Catherine how can we help you hi there thank you for taking my call sure. I was wondering if you have seen um, a patient with uh, transverse myelitis 
my sister has recently been diagnosed with that by a neurology team in Memphis, and I was wondering if you had any um, advice or hope you could give. Um, she got the diagnosis three weeks ago and isn't able to walk, and mm. um, just curious if you had any experience with transverse myelitis. Absolutely. So I'll turn it over to Kaylin. I have seen a few cases in private practice, uh, just primary care, but of course I was not the specialist treating that. So I will turn it over to the specialist. Hey, so yes, I have seen a few cases of transverse pilitis. Uh, What all testing did she have done? Um, She has had several MRIs of spine and brain. Um, She has not had a spinal test. I know they ruled out um, MS for now. Um, it, for a while, they thought it was um, Guillain-Barre or whatever mm-hmm. it is, um, but they seem to have settled on the transverse myelitis, and she's had um, plasmapheresis and IVIG, mm-hmm. uh, but just not having a lot of results, has not been able to walk or stand in three weeks. So it can take sometimes up to six weeks to start seeing improvement, if there is improvement. Um, with okay. transverse myelitis, it is pretty rare. Um, Some of the few cases that I have seen were patients that were already previously diagnosed. Um, They did present in wheelchairs, but the timing of diagnosis is very important when it comes to treatment of transverse myelitis. Okay. Yeah. And it's, I mean, essentially inflammation of the spinal cord, correct? And so it sounds like she's gotten some of the, you know, correct modalities already, getting Mm -hmm. IVIGs, plasmapheresis, those kinds of things. Um, You know, there's not always a cause that can Mm -hmm. be pointed to as, you know, it's this exact thing that caused that. Sometimes it's after an an infection of some type. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it can be associated with autoimmune type disorders. So, you know, if we've not had an autoimmune workup, that would be, you know, something that could be added on to that. Um, Steroids are often given in this particular um, disease process as well. Yes. Um, Which, of course, you know, those are not always going to be long-term medications that we want to utilize. But then early rehab is another important part um, of working on maintaining muscle mass. So even if we're not able to ambulate currently, um, keeping our muscles as healthy as they can so that the range of motion of the joint is supported as well as the actual muscle fibers don't shorten. So has she gotten in to see like physical medicine and rehab or physical therapy, anything like that? Yeah, she's got PT and OT coming to the hospital every day, and they're about to transition her to a rehab facility this week. Good, good. And Catherine, one of the things I do tell my patients is the neurological system is the slowest healing Mm -hmm. organ. If you think about when you fall down and you get a scab on your knee and how long that takes to heal, the neurological tract, the central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, is 10 times longer. So it can sometimes, we tell our stroke patients, it can take six months to a year to see full recovery. So, um, you know, you want to treat the recovery like it's a full-time job, Mm -hmm. eight hours a day. Uh, It's very hard on the patients, but it's the best, from what I have seen, it is the best way for them to be fully rehabilitated. Okay, that's really good to hear. I appreciate that. Absolutely. All right, Catherine, thank you so much for giving us a call. And we will be uh, keeping y'all in our thoughts and prayers and getting that sister better. Great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a great one. Bye-bye. All right, Kaylin, dizziness. So dizziness is one of those just 
kind of random symptoms that can come up and be nothing, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, it can, it can truly it can be you stood up too fast, yes. which you know can happen to to anyone. Um, you know, you squat down to get something, stand up too fast, and you're like, "Whoa, I'm dizzy for a second. Um, but there can be other causes that do warrant more evaluation uh, for that. There is a related symptom vertigo which people often use those terms kind of interchangeably so let's just kind of start what is dizziness so dizziness is the term Mm -hmm. used for the symptom the patient is having Mm -hmm. so i've created an algorithm in my mind of how to diagnose dizziness i'm excited to hear it (laughs) (laughs) and it, it does boil down to usually Three specialties, although other specialties can have involvement, but generally what I see when it comes to dizziness is three certain specialties. It's very important when someone says they have dizziness, they'll come in and they say, I have vertigo. And Mm -hmm. I say to my patients, no, 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 we're not going to say vertigo for right now. Mm -hmm. We're going to say dizziness. So it's very important to determine, do they have lightheaded feeling or do they have spinning Spinning. and it can be hard for a patient to identify that symptom so lightheaded could be that woozy feeling when somebody is standing up and Mm -hmm. it is very important to understand they may not use the word lightheaded Mm -hmm. Uh, vertigo they may say they feel like they got off of a merry-go-round they can't stop spinning um So it's very important to determine those two. A lot of times we will hear rocking on a boat, and I'm thinking more dehydration. Mm. It may feel more like a spinning sensation with that as well. If we're dealing with lightheaded, definitely making sure cardiology is involved. Exactly. Along with neurology. And then if there's a spinning sensation, we want to make sure that... ENT is involved, and we want to make sure neurology Mm -hmm. is also involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, some common causes that we'll be looking at. So if we start with the lightheaded sensation, of course, from the neurological perspective, we still want to ask about water intake. Mm -hmm. I have corrected lightheaded sensation by helping patients become hydrated. I know that sounds so silly. No, we're all dehydrated like everybody is dehydrated. Yeah, new studies are coming out saying we're supposed to drink a gallon of water a day, and I'm lucky to get my 64 ounces in. It's just a process. Just got to start somewhere. But definitely ordering maybe a CTA or an MRA of the head and neck to make sure that there is no, um, make sure I'm not using the medical jargon, no uh, buildup, no narrowing within the arteries yeah. going on that could be causing uh, the, the brain to feel the sensation of dizziness. Cardiology is very important to make sure there's not an abnormal rhythm of the mm-hmm. heart. A lot of cardiologists are going the loop recorder route, I have noticed mm-hmm. these days, but a good cardiac workup is very important for lightheaded sensation. If we're dealing with spinning, what we want to do to look at from a neurological perspective is, is the spinning continuous or does it come and go? Mm. That's very important because certain strokes will have a continuous spinning sensation, brain lesions, tumors. So something that is continuous is neurological, could be neurological, and a brain MRI is very important, Mm -hmm. even if we're suspicious it's more of an ears, nose, and throat related issue. And I'm not ENT, so I'm not really going to go into a whole lot of detail with 
them. But I'll tell you what I tell my patients is if we're dealing with a spinning sensation that comes and goes, it is very important to see, is it, does it last a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, Mm -hmm. but does it go away? Or is it something that they turn over in the bed and they notice dizziness that lasts less than a minute? Uh, We want to rule out Meniere's disorder Mm -hmm. in patients, and that's an ears, nose, and throat issue that could possibly just be corrected with hearing aids. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to also, if somebody's rolling over in the bed or they have certain movements and the dizziness is less than a minute, two minutes, we are concerned about an equilibrium that could be off within the ear that mm-hmm. can be easily corrected with physical therapy. Mm-hmm. We have a chamber in our ear, kind of like a cave, and it has a U-shaped tube that is connected to it. And this little cave, I'm using easy terminology. I love it. That's the way my brain thinks. In my head, I'm like, I see the cave. Has these crystals that help with our balance, and it's very tiny. And these crystals can actually pop out Mm -hmm. and get in that U-shaped tube. And when they rock in that tube, dizziness, a spinning sensation Mm -hmm. can occur. And so what physical therapy does is they may do Epley maneuvers, which is Mm -hmm. a common maneuver, where they do these head movements with the patients, and they're taking that crystal, they're moving it along the tube back into its cave, and it can actually just be corrected Mm -hmm. with physical therapy. And that's um, called benign proxismal positional vertigo. It's mm-hmm. a mouthful, um, but it is much more common B- than we B- really B- give B- it credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what I'm hearing is we always want to go, is this sensation a feeling of woozy, lightheaded, or is it you are the room spinning, mm-hmm. right? Those are, are questions to kind of ask yourself. And then is it continuous? So if you're having this and it's not going away, that's probably a, an emergent visit to a healthcare provider. If it comes and goes, then, you know, one of the things I ask patients when they tell me this, I'll say, when does it happen? Just like you mentioned, you know, is it when you're changing positions in bed or, you know, looking up, um, those types of things? Or is it when you're getting up out of bed or getting up from the chair, those kinds of things? Or when you're maybe doing yard work? I see that a lot in the summer because that makes our dehydration worse. And then do you have any kind of associated symptoms with it? Like do you feel palpitations or anything like that? Uh, And then the next place I go is their med list, you know, and and really look through there because – Um, Blood pressure medicines are great. I Mm -hmm. want you to take your blood pressure medicine. Uh, But sometimes maybe if we're working on our lifestyle and we've improved our nutrition and we're being more physically active, um, sometimes we don't need as much blood pressure medicine anymore. And there's actually something called orthostatic hypotension. And that's when you change positions and your blood pressure kind of falls and you're not able to kind of squish that blood back up to your brain quickly enough. It happens more as we get older because our blood vessels are just not as robust as they used to be. Um, Or if we're on beta blockers or things like that, then we don't kind of mount that response back up to our heart as well. And I'll even take you through some um, what we call orthostatic vital signs in the clinic. So I'll take your blood pressure and your heart rate laying down, and then I'm going to sit you up. 
And then I'm going to stand you up and I'm going to take different sets at each one and see if our blood pressure is, is kind of falling and those kinds of things. And if we are having some, some orthostasis, it may be time for a medication adjustment or it may be um, working on really safe um, position changes, right? Like where we sit up. And we sit up for a minute or so and kind of let our legs dangle over the side of the bed. And then we stand up. We don't just go from laying to, to running. If it's this outside situation where it's hot and sweaty, then looking at hydration, also looking at, you know, if we're outside for prolonged periods of time, sweating, like we're working outside and those types of things, then we may have to do some electrolyte replacement as well and not just plain water. Um, but those are, are kind of the the low-lying ones, and then we get to those uh, heart issues, brain issues, those kinds of things. Yeah, what do you want to say? So going back to the medication, Mm -hmm. it's very important to discuss one specific med Mm -hmm. that I see prescribed a lot for dizziness, and it is only for one specific type of dizziness. Mm. And I see meclizine. Yeah, antivert. Antivert prescribed quite a bit. Actually, for patients who are lightheaded, it can make it worse. Really? Patients who are dehydrated, it can make, make it, it worse. worse, especially in elderly patients. We really want to see this medication in somebody that's having motion sickness mm-hmm. in a car, or we want to see this <clears throat> medicine more in Meniere's disease. Yes. But any other types of dizziness, it can actually make the patient feel worse. Yeah, and you can actually get that that thing over the counter now, too. So, mm-hmm. you know, see a lot more of that. So. Always tell us, your healthcare <laughs> providers, if you're utilizing over-the-counter medications as well so that we can rule out that as a cause. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, joined today in the studio by neurology and nurse practitioner Kaylin Lewis, and we are answering your neurology questions. And we do have a couple callers on the line, so we will go to Boonville and say good morning, Barbara. How can we help you? Uh, my husband had a light stroke the 28th of June. Okay. And uh, they uh, done a lot of tests, and uh, they said he'd had some more, uh, but he didn't know when he had them. But uh, he stays tired a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, his blood pressure drops real low sometimes when he takes some of his blood pressure medicine. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but uh, they said he had an artery devascular disease. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they can't do nothing except giving medicines. And so he's going to a neurologist, but uh, a family doctor is the one that doctored him and uh, gave him some medicine, and the neurologist gave him some too and said that was supposed to help. Mm-hmm. But uh, how long after he had this stroke, it was just a light stroke, he didn't stay out, but a minute, it didn't affect, uh, you know, anything. Is it a speech or uh his arms are, are, he was on his right side and he and it didn't affect anything, but he just stays weak a lot. When you and say weak, do you mean like your his whole body is weak or just that one particular part is just weak? weak? Just, just fatigue, just doesn't feel good. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, Kaylin, what do we got? So the symptom of a stroke is going to be based on the area in the brain that it occurred. And from what I'm understanding from you is he had some previous strokes that you all were unaware of. Am I correct on that? That's right. 
Yeah, sometimes patients may not have symptoms of strokes. Sometimes they may not even realize one of the most common questions I get from patients. I'll say, well, it looks like you had a stroke at some point. And they say, well, when did I have it? Mm. And we don't know. We we don't know. I'll, I'll tell them where it is in the brain and the type of symptoms that can go along with that. And it helps them identify. And they may say, oh, yeah, I remember having blah, blah, blah symptoms six months ago. Um, but it sounds to me like his cholesterol was a little elevated and they may have him on some cholesterol medicine is that what you're talking about yeah when, when they put him on some cholesterol medicine mm-hmm. that's one of the new medicines they put him on and they put him on another blood pressure medicine mm-hmm. which is dropping his blood pressure sometimes like on top it'll be like 90 and mm-hmm. 80 okay time. So we definitely, you definitely want to talk to your provider about mm-hmm. how low the blood pressure is getting. We do want blood pressure to be a little elevated following a stroke, uh, maybe in the 140s for the top, because we want that pressure up in case a clot forms. We want to be able to push it on mm-hmm. through. We don't want it to become stagnant and sit in a vessel. Um, so you do want to talk to his provider about the fact that his blood pressure is getting so low that may be one of the reasons he's tired. Yeah. The other reason he may be tired is it takes a lot of energy to heal the brain. A lot. So he may be, like we were talking about earlier, it can take six months to a year to fully heal. He may be tired for the next year. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't need to take multivitamins, stay hydrated, exercise, work with physical therapy, time is brain. And you want to make sure you're working with the primary care provider or his neurologist to eliminate any stroke risk factors he can't that he has. We can't do anything about the old strokes except to rehabilitate, but we can try to prevent new strokes. And his risk factor is higher due to him having a history of strokes. And Barbara, that blood pressure sounds pretty doggone low. Uh, And so that would make uh, somebody who hadn't had a stroke feel feel fatigued and feel tired. So that is a a priority in contacting his either his neurologist or his primary care provider or both um, and just letting them know how low that that blood pressure has been hanging out um, to see if they want to make any adjustments there. And then making sure we nourish the body as much as we can, uh, you know, trying to make sure that even if he doesn't have a super great appetite that we're offering, you know, snacks throughout the day that have good calories in them. Of course, fruits and vegetables, but, you know, whatever he will eat and enjoy. Uh, and then focusing on sleep as well and making sure that we're getting good um, good rest from that. But that blood pressure definitely needs to be uh, be checked on. Okay. Well, we we uh, seeing a home health nurse okay. and, uh, she shot, she told us to uh, uh, not take mm-hmm. one of them until he checks his blood pressure, and if it starts going up, take the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or sw- taking both of them. Yeah. When he just takes one of them, it don't do that, you know. Yep. And uh, yeah, but and- does dehydration uh, does it cause your blood pressure? To yes, drop ma'am. Yes, ma'am. It does. So you know, blood pressure is a function of how much liquid we have in those blood vessels. And so if we're dehydrated, then we just don't have enough 
liquid in our blood vessels. And so making sure that we are um, drinking kind of non-caffeinated and non-alcoholic things, because both of those will actually make us more dehydrated. Um, And so even just kind of keeping um, a a bottle of water that he can sip on if he doesn't, you know, really like water. You can also add, you know, cut up fruit or whatever to it to make it a little bit more appetizing if uh, water is not his favorite thing. Yeah, but well, he likes water pretty well. But sometimes, you know, your solderers forget to drink uh-huh. when you need to. Yep. And that, that's, uh, I, I encourage him to keep, yep. you know, make sure he's drinking. Yep. I would just keep, keep a, um, whatever type of water he, vessel he likes to drink out of um, just right by his chair or bed or wherever he's sitting and just kind of nudge him and remind him to to take sips on that. I have to do the same thing. I have my water jug right here and I like one with a straw. That reminds me to drink more. Um, But it doesn't matter what kind you use. Just um, try and get that hydration in. But definitely talk to um, your regular doctor about that low blood pressure. And I hope he gets to feeling better soon and that you get some rest too because I know it's exhausting being a caregiver as well yeah that's right I, I want uh, like brain exercises reading and talking on the phone and working word puzzles I, and such like does I, that help actually one of the things that I will be addressing in the memory loss section is about uh, exercises with the brain. So if you stay tuned in you're going to hear all about that. Ooh, we're going to get to that in just a second Barbara. Okay well thank you very much it's, uh, a lot of information that seemed like help. Yes, ma'am. You have a great rest of your day, okay? You too. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, and we will go to Randy on the road. How can we help you, Randy? I'm having some elevated blood pressure issues. All right. Uh, actually went to my family doctor a while back. I was been waking up with a headache mm-hmm. in the mornings, and uh, I have a monitor at my house, which I was checking it, and... Uh, it had been up some for a while, but anyway, it got where it was really high, I guess 190 on top. So I went to my family doctor when they checked. It was like 205. Ooh. So they sent me to the hospital. Yep. And uh, and uh, they at the hospital, EKG was good, CAT scan. They'd done a CAT scan on my head. Okay. Good. Sent me to the cardiologist who set me up for an ultrasound. I guess on my kidneys, renal ultrasound. Good. And I'm waiting on that, but it's like six weeks out. Okay. They said it was a, Hard getting so anyway, and I he all he did was he added another blood pressure medicine to me. I was already on one okay. about five years ago. I had a blockage from heredity. Okay, the doctor told me, and my I had like a stent put in. Okay, so since then I've been on Valsartan. Okay, sixty milligrams, and they've added uh, now this doctor's added amlodipine, amlodipine. in the morning. Okay, so anyway, I guess my I just won't get. I maybe I'm impatient about getting to the underlying issue. I'm a little. <laughs> afraid it's going to be something you know uh waiting that long how old are you randy like general ballpark 65 65 okay and try to live a healthy lifestyle not overweight try to eat correct now a couple glasses of wine at night okay i hadn't had any of that since this issue okay so walk two miles but i don't have a i don't think a blockage is you know i walk two miles in the morning no problems no chest pains no anything other than this blood pressure Randy, do you now, snore? I, you know, I've had a sleep study before. How, no, I'm uh, very mild. How long ago uh, was that sleep study? Uh, about, I'd say two or three years. Okay, and it was mild sleep apnea? Yes. Do you use a machine? 
Uh, I actually was able to get one, but uh, right now I'm not using one. Okay. And I have tried it on and off. Okay. So... Addressing the sleep apnea is going to be super important. As soon as you said um, first thing in the morning headaches, like I wrote on my paper, sleep apnea. That is a a very common symptom with sleep apnea um, is trouble controlling blood pressure and first thing in the morning headaches. And so knowing that we have a diagnosis of sleep apnea, it's going to be super important to, to get that. Um, treated. Not saying that's the okay. the cause of, of all of this, but it is certainly not helping the situation. Um, so, yep. you know, following up with the sleep provider who did that sleep study is going to be important. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, you can always try um, either a wedge pillow or riser. Do you have a wedge? Do you sleep on it? I do. I do, every night. Excellent. Excellent. Good. So it sounds like you're doing what you need to be doing there, but we need to get that sleep apnea looked at um, because that could be um, part of it. I agree. We got to wait on this um, kind of renal, uh, renovascular ultrasound that they've um, ordered to make sure that we don't have anything going on there. Is it coming down with the addition of the amlodipine? It's when I check it at home, he's, I got to go back in uh, the end of this week and mm-hmm. check it again. But at my home, I'm still getting like 155, 160 on top, over 85, which is down. Much better than 190. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I'm afraid they're going to, uh, I, it may increase it. I think he put me on 10 milligrams of uh, amlodipine. But I, you know, I, I, I wish that hopefully I can get it. I just want to. Well, there, you know, sometimes it's a combination of medication and then lifestyle. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of things right in terms of lifestyle. But, you know, we would want to do kind of a, a fairly in-depth nutrition assessment, see if there's any hidden uh, salt in some of these things. Also looking at right. stress um, and then not only just sleep apnea, but also sleep hygiene and how many hours we're getting and if those are restorative and all those different kinds of things. So there are lots of kind of things. That could be playing playing in there. No, I do not sleep well at all. Okay, yeah. So that uh, that could be contributing a lot to this. You know, when we sleep, especially in um, some of the deeper stages of sleep, that's when our blood vessels are able to relax and our heart rate's able to slow down, and our our heart just gets a little bit of a a break. It doesn't stop beating, but it it gets a little bit chill. And so when we're not able to sustain um, good restorative sleep, then our heart doesn't get that um, kind of restoration for itself and our blood pressure tends to stay a little bit higher so if we're not sleeping well then i would ask for a sleep consult actually and just go see one of the sleep doctors okay thank you thank Uh, you randy enjoyed your show thank you so much we appreciate you calling and in this last segment of the show we want to get to another really common thing that people will will come ask me about they're like i'm forgetting stuff right is this a, a problem so at the, at the base, what is memory loss, and should we really be concerned about it? So in order to understand memory loss, we need to definitely understand how memory works. Um, it does take our entire brain to construct memory. Um, so, for instance, for an example, if somebody was going on a date 
Uh, they would, let's say it's a female going on a date with a male. Uh, they would use the part of their brain for vision, their occipital lobe, and they would look to see if this is an attractive mate. They would use their olfactory of, are they wearing cologne? Do they, Do they smell, smell good? good? Yes. They may hold hands. They may, that'll, that'll um, stimulate the parietal lobe, the sensation part of the brain. Um, you know, they may eat some popcorn or eat a dinner, and that, that may stimulate the taste. And then, of course, hearing. Are they listening to music? And uh, all of this does construct our short-term or our working memory. Now, when we are receiving information that's creating short-term memory, our short-term memory is only good enough to remember seven numbers. That is why phone numbers were originally before area codes. Seven numbers, because that's as much as we can obtain in our short-term memory on average. So this goes through an area of our brain that is the frontal cortex of the brain, which is the front part of the head. And the hippocampus is a very important portion of our brain to help as the scratch board for memory to decide what needs to be stored into long-term and what needs to be thrown out. Uh, The hippocampus, the location of it, is if you think about your head, you've got the sides of your head. We call our temples, but that lobe is called our temporal region, and that hippocampus sits in the middle of it. There's two of them. And this plays a very important role when we are diagnosing memory issues and determining memory problems. Um, We also have what's called neurotransmitters within our brain. And neurotransmitters, they're very important because they help with the signaling of the brain. Our brain's almost like an electrical system. And these neurotransmitters, they're actually these chemicals we have in our brain that helps with this electricity and there's different types of neurotransmitters there's what we call amino acids peptides Um, we have acetylcholine monoamines but one of the amino acids that is very important with memory is called glutamate Um, Glutamate is very important as far as helping with uh, learning. Uh, And and if there is abnormalities or an imbalance with this particular chemical in the brain, we see certain types of dementias. Another neurotransmitter we see that plays a very important role in memory is called acetylcholine. And the reason I am talking about these neurotransmitters because it plays a very big role in medications that may be prescribed for certain types of dementia. When we are diagnosing dementia, it is very important to take a very strong clinical history. This includes obtaining information from the patient, and this includes obtaining information from the family members. So we want to know how long this memory loss has been going Mm -hmm. on. We want to see if there's any physical conditions. Uh, The main question I always get asked is, what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? Mm -hmm. Dementia is is a memory loss with the brain, and Alzheimer's is a particular part. If I was going to eat fruit, you'd want to know what kind. 
mine, and apple yeah. is round, round, and tastes different than a banana. So think of dementia as fruit, and think of apple as Alzheimer's. There's four types of dementias that we do deal with that are the main ones. There's lots of types of dementias, but there's Alzheimer's, Lewy body dementia, frontal temporal dementia, and there is also vascular dementia. Uh, I believe we are running out of time. We are just about out of time, but you know it's a really good kind of jumping off point. But memory loss is a really complex issue, and we want to make sure that you get an accurate diagnosis. So what I would say is, you know, if you feel like you're having memory issues or you're a caregiver of someone that feels like maybe somebody is starting to forget things more, it's never wrong to just ask your healthcare provider and let us start to do some of those more in-depth questionings and evaluations so that we can get a timely, accurate diagnosis so that we can then get you on the correct treatment path that way. All right, that was a quick hour. It went by super <laughs> fast. It was a lot of good information out there. If you didn't get your question into us or you want to know more about any of the things we talked about today, you can always email me. That uh, email address is fit at mpbonline.org. You can also listen to this show in its entirety by downloading our podcast. You just go um, and search for Southern Remedy on whichever podcasting platform you like to use and download those apps. Also, be sure to tune in every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. I've been your host, Josie Bidwell, here with nurse practitioner Kaylin Luth. Kaylin Lewis, and you've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.